Amen. Merry Christmas. Oh, my goodness. How awesome is that? It is. <laughs> yeah, not a rhetorical question necessarily. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, I want to talk about the incarnation. So the next three Sundays leading up to Christmas is what we're going to be sharing. I do want to remind you of something, though, especially if you're new. Um, at the beginning of the year, we'll be starting a new series called Emotional Healthy Spirituality. And so I want to encourage you to participate in that or share that. Um, it's, uh, I don't know how long it's going to be. It'll be at least four or five weeks. And that culminates um, with a seminar. Uh, my good friend Bob Johnson um, has struggled with depression, struggled with uh, anxiety, all those things in his life, uh, certainly before he became a Christian. Um, and still, it's a battle sometimes, uh, even now. Um, but uh, just want to encourage you uh, to sign up and, and get some information about that. There'll be more coming, um, but January 26th and 27th. It's a Friday, Saturday. Um, it's really uh, something he's put together. Years ago, when we were at the same church, um, he uh, uh, came, basically did a, a, a class. And that class has morphed into... Um, honed and multiplied in, in different uh, varieties and different ways. And so um, he, I just asked him, maybe you could come on and do it on a weekend. It's usually like six weeks, eight weeks. Um, but I know it'll bless you. Um, love him to pieces. He's a good guy. He's, uh, uh, even though he's an army guy, but that's okay. <laughs> just kidding. I love it all, especially the men's breakfast. You know, you pick on any one of those branches in the, in the, in the military, and all of a sudden they go, Rrr. <laughs> it's just so much fun. And of course, uh, again, I live vicariously through my own son in the Air Force, so, so yeah. Um, but Merry Christmas, everybody. It is a good, good day. So Ephesians, or Philippians, rather, chapter 2. Um, the next message today, um, the idea was the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And the thought came, is like, so what? And I thought that was kind of harsh. <laughs> um, and really, what I'm after, it's uh, what is Christmas meant to be? I mean, we celebrate it, and people talk about it, and we have this perspective of our own, but it's on this earthly side of things, and how we, as human beings, experience that. And because we are yet to be glorified in our glorified body, what we are hoping for, a new heaven, a new earth, we are currently bound by this physicality of who we are, and we automatically see things from that perspective. So my hope this morning is to do basically one thing, that you and I, to get this full orb view of what Christmas is and what it's meant to be and how we are to know it, is to see it from heaven's perspective, God's point of view. The only way we can do that is because God has revealed himself to us. This is the only way we can accomplish this. Apart from scripture, apart from the word of God, apart from Jesus revealing himself to us, there is no way we come up with this. How do I know that? Well, because I can go back and look at history, and I can look at all the other religions that man has uh, acquired and accumulated and put forth. And the strange thing is, which isn't so strange to me, that they all look like human beings. They all respond the way we do as human beings. They all look like us and act like us and have all of those things typically. The only way we can experience the true joy of Christmas is to know the, and discover the transcendency of the triune God. Paul said it this way. Later on in the Philippians, to the letter in the Philippians, he says, The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Listen, the only one who checks all those whatever boxes is the person of Jesus Christ, the triune God. And in this moment in our life and where we are in culture, we, like some generations, to varying degrees one to another, are experiencing great sin and evil in our time. And many wonder if the incarnation of Jesus Christ has made any difference or accomplished anything at all. In other words, we'll do this thing we call Christmas. We'll talk about the spirit of Christmas, but not knowing what that really means or what that is. We'll know or see what that looks like in our own experience. And I believe it being co-opted or redefined into something that it was not originally intended to be. And we'll go back after Christmas in a few weeks, the first of the year, and all the celebration that's taking place. And we'll go back to our lives. The Christmas spirit will seem to fade away. And we're right back to where we were before. Where evil abounds and seems to grow. And so what's the point of it all anyway? Know anybody like that? Great! Invite them January, the first Sunday in January. <laughs> Invite them to Bob's seminar. This should be a joyous and encouraging time because of the incarnation. What's the point? The point is this. That God in real time and history, entered into what he created so he would be glorified in all the earth, under the earth, throughout the entirety of the universe in which he created. It is the fact that has upended everything in the world and why we see all the tension that we see. What we know to be moral, what we know to be good, what we know to be truth, all of it. And how we then respond to the incarnation and what we see all around us. We'll deal with that specifically next week. But this morning, you saw it this morning in two lives, in Jamie and Kyla. And like so many of you who serve faithfully as moms and dads, and even as a congregation and a body of just giving your life in, in a thousand and one ways to be a blessing to one another, to visit in the hospital, to pray for one another, to send all those things over the church F, praying, praying, praying. I love that. The acts of service that you do yesterday, House of Hope, uh, the food drop yesterday, and all those other things. It's from small group leaders down to, to, to the variety of things that happen because of the incarnation. It means something, even in the midst of tragedy. So the so what this morning is what we're fighting for. What we're sacrificing for, what we're giving our time for, our money for, the giftedness that we have to give to another, to stand against and call the godlessness to repent. For without any of that, what you seemingly to me you end up with is what the Old Testament says, as in the days of Noah, when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So Jesus is more 
than just coming to make your life and mine better. It is far more than that to make your life happy. He's done something extremely profound. And just to make sure we see that, we need to see it from heaven's perspective so we can have this fullest understanding of what the incarnation is. So Philippians chapter 2, let me begin at verse 5. This, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was, or your version may say, or being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above all names, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hey, Jesus, thank you for this morning and to share in your word, to worship here. God, I pray that I can clearly gain this understanding and share what you have done and what Christmas is to us but on the perspective of what it meant for you to get here. And so, Father, just pray that you just bring this understanding to us that we would know and understand the power, the work, the love that you have for us and what we call Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. There are five, I'll say, positions, characteristics, or steps, if you will, that I want to work through this passage. with. This is, this is heaven's perspective. This is before Jesus comes. This is before you and I have this, even this understanding of what Christmas is meant to be and what Paul describes as what had to happen. And so five I'll just call them steps, if you will, that Jesus accomplished in the incarnation. The first one is this, that he stepped off his heavenly throne. That's verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Again, some of your versions may say being in the form. That's probably a better translation. The idea of being infers that there's an essence of being which can't change. This is a direct understanding that Jesus is deity. There's a lot of things that you and I try to change, right? Try to change my weight. It doesn't work so well right now. <laughs> you change jobs. You change, you change a lot of things. But when it comes to your person, there's a lot of things you can do. I should probably maybe color my hair. I don't know. Right? Work out. There's all kinds of things that we can change, but... All those things are in our appearance. That's not who we are. And that's what this is getting at, what Paul is doing. There is nothing that you can do to change your essence as a man or a woman. You can't become, in other words, anything other than a human being. Oh, you can try, and our culture is desperately trying, but the essence of who you are cannot change. You can be young, you can be old, you can be single, you can be married, you can be divorced, you can be rich, poor, sick, healthy, it doesn't matter. You don't have the power to change your humanity. In fact, Jesus said you can't even do something as so simple in that regard than to add one hour to your life. This is Jesus' essential being. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 8, and I think those references are up there for you if you're right, taking notes, before Abraham was, I am. 
There was no misunderstanding of what he was equating. The Jews, Jewish leaders completely understood what he was doing and equating himself to God in heaven. He made that extremely clear. Colossians 1.15 reminds us that he is the image of God. It literally means the replica, the, the literal image of this duplication of the invisible God made visible. Because there's no one like him. I mean, the Old Testament talk, he's, his thoughts are higher. He is higher. He is, he is so farther beyond you and I as human beings. And we think we're the top dog on the ladder here. But he is so far beyond our thoughts and our ideas of who we are as human beings. And yet Jesus comes and is this duplication, this, this replica, if you will. That's what he has made in his image in Colossians. The other key word that we need to understand from Paul's position here in Philippians, he uses the word morphe, which you should hear the word metamorphosis. That's where that comes from. It's this natural essence of something. That's what morph means. Something that is innate and inherent, can't be changed. It's just what it is. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we were trans, you and I were transformed, morphe, if it's the same word, into the image, the same image, the image of the Lord. What has taken place this morning with Jamie and Kyla? When we come to Christ, we are transformed into that image. We are morphed into that image. And he says from one level of glory to the next. We literally take on his nature, his abiding nature. Galatians 4.19, Paul is praying that Christ would be fully formed in us. We all start as spiritual babies, and it's that physical picture of what a baby needs and how much care it needs. But the intent is that it doesn't stay a baby. It grows and matures. Same idea. Jesus was the morphe of God, if you will, the metamorph, truly God and truly man. And in that process, he gave up some things. It says he emptied himself. You're very, he may say he poured out what is he pouring out? <clears throat> Many would argue that, oh, he, he, he gave up his deity. Again, he, he can't. If he did that, he wouldn't exist. It is his essence and who he is. So what did he pour out? John 17, verse 4 indicates that he poured out his glory. As he's praying, praying to God, restore the glory that I once had. He gave up his glory. Isaiah 53 says he gave up his beauty. It's a specific understanding that in his physical personhood, Jesus, in contradiction to all the paintings you see, was not a handsome man. Okay? It explicitly says, in other words, he wasn't like King David, his ancestors. That, that gene did not follow to, to, to Jesus. He wasn't handsome. He was just blending in with everybody else in the crowd. There was, in other words, no means in which he stood out. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he gave up all the riches of eternal glory. It says he became poor for your sakes, and not poor in a financial way. He became poor of his eternal riches. He gave up his relationship in some respects to God the Father, if you remember, while he is on the cross. My God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? He stripped himself of his privileges, not his nature. And this idea of what he had to do to cross eternity to come here, to leave his throne to come here. Contrast that if you have your Bible. 
Hold your finger in Philippians to, to Isaiah chapter 14. I just want to cover this. Because here's the contrast that you and I need to, if you don't know, Isaiah gives this description about Satan. He does the exact opposite of what Paul is describing in Philippians. And when you go to Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12, he says this, How fallen are you from heaven, O star of the dawn? He's referring to Satan. Satan was the highest created being. Created being. He was the worship leader of heaven. And here was his attitude. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself the most high. Do you hear the difference? Jesus didn't need to do that because he was that. And that the contrast should be so stark in our minds. Here's the second thing, the second step Jesus did. He took the position or a form of a servant. He steps off his heavenly, glorious, so much so that Scripture says you and I as human beings have no comprehension of how good that's going to be. We have no understanding completely of what that's going to be for us. And he left that to take the form of a servant. Verse 7, having emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. It's the same word again, morph. Again, it's his nature. So this is really, really important because the nature and character of who God is is what? To serve. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Most kings, most government officials, what do they do? When they walk in the room, everybody's supposed to take notice. You walk into the room of a king, what are you supposed to do? You genuflect, you bow down, all those things. You do that in the nature and character of who Christ is because he's God, but the very nature of who he is is meant to serve. That is remarkable to me. He didn't become like one. Again, it's his essential being of who he is as this idea, this character of being a servant. The moment he takes his kingly robes off to don an apron of a servant. Isaiah 52, he is the suffering servant. Psalms 40 says he would be a a servant, not just acting like one, but he is one. He doesn't turn it off and on like a light switch. He wasn't just pretending to be a servant. You see that even in Matthew. I came to serve, not be served. And he demonstrated that all we've been through Mark, all through his earthly ministry. And when you think about the birth of Christ and the incarnation, you think about him abandoning his throne, if you will, accepting this idea of servanthood and demonstrating that because he wants to glorify the Father. You and I, as human beings, receive the benefit of that. But the whole point is for him to glorify the Father in heaven. Again, the benefit for you and I is we can enjoy life. We can be happy. We can have all those things. But that's not why he came. I mean, consider if you have those gospel conversations and someone thinks about that and processes that to go, you know, so Jesus left to come to earth to die for me to make me happy. Really? (laughs) 
He did all that for you. Wow. I don't think so. In fact, I know so. But you and I get the result of that because of who he is, the nature of what servanthood is in his life, and that's the grace and mercy that he gives. Even John 13, one of the most servant-related actions Jesus did was to wash his disciples' feet. And again, in Jewish context, there was no job lower than that. The lowest of the low. Here's the third step. Not only did he leave his throne, not only did he don the apron of a servant and be a servant. <clears throat> but you got to put those two things together. To what end? And I just call it the condescending convalescence. To associate with sinners. To associate with you. Do you understand how far he's come from where he was in his heavenly throne to come to condescend to someone as wretched as me? Jesus gave up all his heavenly glories and took on the essence of a servant to associate with sinners because that was going to glorify the Father the most, the Godhead the most. He wasn't just recognized just as a, a human, but it's the understanding that he was both God and man. Again, that's why so many other religions have such a hard time believing Jesus was God because this is the one thing they stumble over, Muslims in particular, that God would soil himself, dirty himself to come to earth to be and look like us. It is, it, it's extremely difficult for them to comprehend. Fortunately for you and I and the rest of the world, those thoughts about those types of gods were invented by man. See, the true and living God, the true evidence of his deity is, is meant to serve. He is meant to, to glorify the Father in his service. Something no earthly philosophy or religion could even imagine or recreate. All the false gods, like I said, look just like us when you study them because we created them. Jesus was born in the likeness of men so he could serve the Father and interact with his creation that's trapped in sin. And that idea of acting and becoming and looking like sinners is the only way manageable to do that. There is no other way for him to do that. Oh, he could have maybe just you know, ported himself in and go, boom, here I am. But he wouldn't have been a very high, good high priest to know the suffering that you and I experience, to be tempted like you and I in every way, to feel whatever you brought in here this morning, those feelings, the insecurities, the anxiety, all of those things that we experience in life because it's a fallen world, he understands. That's why. It says being found in human form. But this time it's a different word. It's not morph. It's schema, where we get schematic. It's the actual form he took, his physicality, his outward appearance, 
His essence doesn't change. His deity doesn't change. The fact that he's a servant doesn't change. But his outside changes. It's a totally different word. Paul says Jesus was found. He was born like us. He was a baby like us. He had to learn to walk like you and I did. He had to grow up like you and I did. He was able to be found because he condescended. Here's the fourth step. Because of that condescension, he took on a selfless posture. Paul says he humbled himself. That's verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself. That's one of the hardest things for you and I to do as human beings, is to be humble. Listen, Jesus could have taken any position he wanted to in society, but he took one of the lowliest, a lowly carpenter, to work with his dad's business for 30 years. He grew up in that, worked that until he started his earthly ministry. We know that because Scripture lets us know, but also we know the thought of man, because where did the wise men go when they came to visit the king? Not a carpenter shop, but the palace. That's where you expect kings to be. That's where they expected Jesus to be. He's the king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of all nations. He should be in his palace. He just got it a little early is all. (laughs) But his posture was humility. Let me ask you something. If you had a choice, where would you go? A nasty, dirty, smelly manger or a plush palace? Which would you pick? I mean, that's the nature and character, again, of the king of the universe. To transform lives. To know that you and I were stuck in sin. Helpless. Hopeless. Think about all the acts of humility Jesus demonstrated in his life. From the washing of feet feeding people, healing people, walking everywhere, enduring all sorts of of persecution from the Jewish leaders, all sorts of horrible things in his life is his physical ministry, and yet he entrusted himself to the only one he could, and that's the Father in heaven. And he followed his plan no matter what the cost. So you have to ask yourself, How humble was he? Step five is this. He was obedient all the way to the cross. How far did it go? How far was his humility, the depth of his humility, all the way to death? To take on the responsibility for sinful humanity, for my sin and yours, but not being the one at fault. That's leadership, by the way. He was obedient not to come, just to live humbly, uh, to, to go from a throne to a dirty manger, uh, to, to have financially poor parents, to be mocked, spit on, beaten, but to become a curse. That was in the, the mind of the, the triune God long before A baby in a manger. He was obedient to be made a curse for us. 
Look at verse 9, chapter 2 of Philippians. Because of all of that, because that's the mind of Christ, and by the way, you as a Christian and I now have the mind of Christ, therefore, we should have the same mind in these areas of our life. And we can only do that in the power of the Spirit, in the transformation that he's doing. I can't do it on my own. <laughs> Tried. I just make a mess. So what happens? Verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There it is again. All of that to magnify and to make much of the Godhead, who God is. It's the best thing that God can do for you, for me. It's always the cross before the glory, right? We've talked about that. And in your life and mine, we just did this in Mark chapter 10. You're, what, remember the magnifier? You know, you think you've left everything? You think you've left everything for my sake and all that? You don't understand the multiplier. And Jesus says what? You'll have 100-fold. And we talked about, hey, if you could go into the stock market right now and put down some money and go guaranteeing 100 times more than that, what would you do? Oh, come on. You stinking would bet the farm, wouldn't you? I mean, you'd be all in, right? Yeah. <laughs> but that's what Jesus did spiritually for you. To know that's what's awaiting you because this life is not all of life. That there is more after this life. That's his promise to you. That's the hope that we have. Let me ask you. If there is none of that, if Jesus didn't do any of that, and all you have is what you're seeing in society, what you see around the world, uh, there is, in other words, no God, what hope can you offer? What are you offering me that's better? Now all I have to do is decide, okay, you know, which political system do I want? Which dictator do I want? Do I want this one, this one? That's all my options. Why? So I can gut this life out and try to get the best I can out of it? So all you're really offering me is whatever happens in this life to me, in this body, in this person, the, this is the best I can ever hope for. I've had the privilege of traveling around this world, mostly to Mexico, but the 10 days I spent in Ukraine was rather interesting. They suffer just like we do here. In some respects, maybe more. That's the best you're going to offer them? This is it? So what does Paul say? Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we're dead. Let's call it a day. The magnificent gospel that God is giving us is because of what he's done in the incarnation. And this was the plan before the foundation of the world, meaning before God said, in the beginning, or let there be light, this was the plan to demonstrate his nature and character to you. So let me ask you something. The so what is really that Jesus has come. That's the so what. And there's not a thing. Ooh, that was close. I almost said something bad. There's not a thing that you can do about it because it's happened. It is a reality that Jesus Christ has come. 
That's the so what. So what will you do with him this Christmas? That's the question. We'll share more about that specifically next week. Hey, Jesus, thank you for your goodness and grace. The testimony that we see in Scripture about who you are, the nature and character of who you are, and how far you go to love someone like me. Father, I'm so thankful. I am thankful that we celebrate Christmas. God, I'm thankful for having the understanding and the knowledge of what it took so there would be a first Christmas in the nature and character of who Christ is to look like us, talk like us, act like us, experience life like us, and yet doing it perfectly, not like us. That this plan and this incarnation and the the whole means of Christmas would one day in his life end at a cross. But to know that wouldn't be the end. That would be just the beginning. The beginning for lost sinners like me. Like many here today who you have saved, who you have given hope. God, I pray that this Christmas we would understand that more and more and shout as loud as we possibly can this year. Merry Christmas to all. In Jesus' name.